Kia ora and welcome to the Stronger Dads Collective podcast, where we aim to help dads be stronger versions of themselves as fathers, people, and in their athletic pursuits. Let's get into today's episode. Kia ora team and welcome to episode 20 of the Stronger Dads Collective podcast. Uh, today for episode number 20, which is a milestone I've been kind of had in the back of my mind because I've heard somewhere... Um, don't even know which stats it was. I don't know if they're real stats or made up stats, but that only something like 1% of podcasts get to 20 episodes. Now that could be completely made up, but I'm going to claim it um, and claim to be in the top, you know, 1% of all podcasts that exist or have existed because most of them didn't get here. Um, So that's, that's cool for me. I had this 20 as a thing that I wanted to get to and um, we're here, whether the stats are true or not, I think it's still a, a cool number to hit double digits for the second time. Um, and still making it every single week. So that is cool. <clears throat> anyway, today I'm joined by a very special guest, um, Dr. Helms. Eric and I graduated together from AUT, feels like a long time ago now, um, 2017, I believe it was, in the end of year ceremony there, I think in November. Um, we graduated together, we both finished our PhDs at around about the same time, um, and it was quite nice because otherwise... I would have known no one um, at graduation because I essentially did my PhD remote. Um, so having Eric to walk alongside up the street, you know, dressing in our crazy outfits and our cowpat hats, um, you know, it just added a little bit special, a uh, little bit more to that occasion, made that a little bit more special. So, um, Eric, I've said nothing about you, but I'll let you say hello, and then I'll give a little <laughs> bit of a, <laughs> my my bio or perspective on on you, Eric. Well, hello. It was uh, that that was actually a really good memory, and it was kind of cool because we were the two. I think the two people, maybe the first two people, but maybe not. I'm not sure. So I'm thinking about Keog and Winwood and a few others. The first two PhD candidates who graduated from AUT with the title powerlifter or powerlifting in our uh, our PhD title, I think. I'm trying to think even if mine actually said powerlifting. I think it might have just said maximal strength. Are you sure it didn't say the tapering practice of powerlifters? Is that just one of your That was one of my titles? one of my chapters. Oh wow. Well, nonetheless. Maybe we, you we, were then. <laughs> I am I am the, the sole no, that's not true. I think there's been people afterwards. Um, maybe the first. Maybe the first. That's that's a very strange claim to flame fame, but I'll take it. Hey, just like my podcast stat, mate. Um, but anyway, for those of you who don't know um, who Eric is or who Dr. Helms is, um, I'm going to refer to you as Eric from now on, uh, just as long as you don't mind that and don't feel offended, mate. I'm, I'm sure you don't. <laughs> um, but I've known Eric since well before we did um, our PhDs together or graduated with our PhDs. Um, back in about 2012 or 2013 was probably when I first met Eric. We competed together um, and powerlifting at the Commonwealth Champs in 2013, but I'm pretty certain um, we'd met each other before that. So that's a decade ago now, Eric, just to help us both yeah. feel a little bit older. Um, so we competed at the Commonwealth Championships where we deadlifted at about, I don't know, what was it, 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning, probably the longest powerlifting meet that I've ever um, experienced and one that I will probably never forget. <laughs> um, but that's what happens, I guess, when your loaders aren't, the most efficient um but hey oh, oh that's what i'm going to blame it on but it was an interesting time <laughs> what what do you recall of that one I, I remember i had about two 500 mil energy drinks i think to try and keep myself alive yeah man i think the i think the first time we met was actually nationals that year um which i think would have been in christchurch in 2013 yeah, i think that'd be all right yeah um but we did talk a little more at at uh at commonwealth slash oceania um 
there was a lot of things about that meet that I look back on. And because I was just recently coaching in November 2022 at us doing the Commonwealths again, and just how well of a job the NZPF did with that, the stark contrast is pretty wild. But that uh, Commonwealth Champs back in 2013 was the biggest meet that had ever happened in New Zealand. And it was like one of the biggest meets that had happened, period, at the IPF at the time. And I just don't think the NZPF was... Let's just say that there are times that I love the she'll be right Kiwi attitude. Um, that wasn't one of them. The, uh, the, the, like the track suits with the NZ uh, logo on them were being shared around. Um, they had metal ceremonies that got cut off so that people could go to bed. They didn't know what I placed. And I knew that I was maybe on the cusp of third, potentially in Oceania or Commonwealth, but they didn't communicate to the lifters which competition they were technically lifting in. So they told me to come back the next morning before lifting started. And mind you, we did our last deadlift around 1, 1.30 a.m. And we were the 93s. So then the heavier boys had to finish. So by the time I was actually getting that information, it was 2 a.m. And then I had to come back before lifting started at 6 a.m. to get a medal. And guess what I found out when I got there? Oh, no, you placed fourth in Oceania, fifth in Commonwealth. You don't get any medals. So I'm like, well, I'm so glad I came here after three hours of sleep. Um, <laughs> in an inadvertent two-day competition so uh it was a really good experience though that was uh probably is going to be the only time i will ever competed at least in the open division internationally technically mm -hmm. even though it was you know a 15-minute drive for me but <laughs> but it was it was pretty cool um and it was a good experience and i i don't fault anybody i think it's it's a big ask to put on a big international comp but it was uh it was a unique experience for sure and i could tell that nzpf was just Hanging on by their fingernails, so. I mean, they they got it done somehow, and I think even Mike T lifted at that comp. I think he was like a guest lifter, wasn't he? And Kim Walford. Kim Walford, was she there as well? They both guest lifted at it, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember that, and I, I remember, I think um, Mike might have broken the world record or went for a world record or something at that one. Um, was it, it was a, yeah, it was random, eh? Because, like, that was such a strange meet, like, just overall from the experience of the lifter. Um, must have been very stressful to be the ones behind the scenes, I would say, um, running that, because that's always the thing I think now. Like, I've only hosted a few events, but those that I have hosted, like, and it might be one flight or, or two flights or whatever it is, but, man, to host, like, a five-day or whatever it is meet and then have things that are going over and going wrong and people, you know, yeah, I, I do not envy um, those roles, especially because the majority of times those are voluntary as well, at least in New Zealand. You know, you're not making 100%. thousands of dollars running this meet. You're doing it because you love the sport. Um, and if you make some coin, you've probably done well, um, regardless of whether that's $1 profit or, you know, 1000 It's like, well, you've probably done a pretty good job if you've managed to make any money from hosting one of those things. Um, that's right. Although it might be different now. I've been out of the game for a while. Um, but I still haven't really introduced you, Eric. So um, <laughs> you, you now know that he has a PhD. You know that he's competed at a high level um, in the sport of powerlifting. Um, but Eric is also many things as an athlete. He's been a strong man. He's, uh, are, are you, have you got your pro card in bodybuilding or not? So I did. I think the most accurate way to say it is that I uh, got pro qualified in 2011. Um, yeah. You don't actually get your pro card in the INBA or at least at the time, until you actually competed as a pro. Uh, but then okay. I decided, you know what, instead of competing as a pro, I'm going to move to New Zealand and do a master's and a PhD. So <laughs> I will also say that um, 
the INBA is one of the like no no shade. It's one of the less competitive organizations, at least in the states. Mm-hmm. So internationally, there are places where it's the dominant organization. Uh, so at the moment, I have been trying in both in 2019 and then hopefully this year to trying to get my pro status in the WNBF, which is a uh, probably the most competitive out of all of the natural bodybuilding organizations. So yeah, I'm like farm league pro, but not like pro pro. I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> so so kind of a pro bodybuilder. You've competed yeah. at um, weightlifting. Have you done nationals at weightlifting or regionals? I have done regionals. I will. I have done masters nationals because in ma- masters for weightlifting is 35 and over. So yeah, yeah last time Counts, I did man. my last meet was uh, was masters nationals. So yeah. So you've kind of, like from my perspective when I look at your like athletic history, you've kind of done everything that someone who is interested in strength or wants to be strong or look aesthetic, you've pretty much done it all. Like, have you done Highland Games? That would probably tick off. I have. Yeah, I did that. So my goal in uh, 2020 was to do a a strongman competition, a weightlifting meet, and a powerlifting meet. And I don't know if you've heard of COVID. That that happened for a few years here. It was some very long lockdowns. But um, the... The two the 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 strongman competition that I was planning to do got canceled, and basically the rest of them kind of fell as a result. Mm-hmm. And they only, and that organizationally popped up um, out of COVID and able to recover right towards the end of the year. And they put on an annual Highland Games style competition that the, uh, the Strongman Association runs here. So shout out to Chris Latham, and I jumped in that in December with a few other uh, powerlifters who I convinced to do it, which is really cool. Like there's this amazing experience that i always cherish of watching evie corrigan fall down because she's trying to spin a hammer it was great so um yes watching the the, like the strongest people in the world evie corrigan who just you know out of nowhere won the uh the the sheffield which is an amazing experience and shatter the uh 52 kilo world record seeing her fall on her butt and be incompetent was it was a really really fun time for me considering she was a badass even she's a junior world champ at that time so just kind of getting all these other strength athletes and convincing them to go out in the field and and just try to play around with some weird implements, along with some legitimate strongmen and, and uh, Highland Games competitors who were very welcoming. That was a really cool experience. But I'd, I sort of did the trifecta that year. I did a weightlifting meet, powerlifting meet, and then I did um, the Highland Games competition. Um, and one thing I will say is that I have done two strongman competitions, but they weren't full, like, five-event meets. One was the – you probably heard of, like, Static Monsters, eh, where mm-hmm. they do – yeah, so it's like a conventional deadlift and then a a log press. And then I've also done one of the like kind of exhibition-y style meets where there was like a stone competition and you could do a truck pull as well if you wanted. So it was like a two-event strongman mm-hmm. meet. So yeah, there's probably a few things I haven't ticked off, but I'd say I probably have hit up the most of the buffet at the, at the hotel, if <laughs> yeah, you will. You, if there was a strength buffet and each, each thing you choose is a competition, you've pretty much... Uh, selected everything possible on the menu and had a had a good crack at it at least. That's right. And um, not only that, you you are a coach as you mentioned as well. So um, I know you've recently worked um, with Jess over at the Sheffield. So um, tell us a little bit about your your coaching background and history and what you're kind of doing that at the moment. Do you mainly work with powerlifters or is it strength? That, um, sorry, um, bodybuilders or do you kind of again you're able to go across that spectrum that you've been involved in? Yeah, it's a bit of a split between um, bodybuilders and and powerlifters at the moment, although I have more powerlifters. 
Um, and I only have like five athletes at the moment. Mm. Um, but to go back to my history, I started as a personal trainer um, shortly after getting out of the, the Air Force in my early 20s in 2005. And I worked at like the local YMCA. And then when my wife got out of the Air Force, we moved back to California. I worked in a studio called Fitness Together. And I also worked for a company called National Home Trainers, where I would drive out to people's homes and train them in home. Um, did some some of my own personal private in-home training and worked for another studio uh, and then transitioned to uh, personal trainer education. I taught at a, what New Zealanders would recognize as a technical college for that had a degree mm-hmm. in personal training. And I did that until I moved to New Zealand. And then I had fully transitioned to online coaching shortly before that move uh, under uh, my company, which for those who are watching on video, 3D Muscle Journey, which is a strength and physique coaching company for drug-free lifters. So I hit my peak in terms of in-person coaching probably sometime in like 2010 and then transition until I hit my peak in online coaching where I had like a roster of like 40 to 45 athletes uh, running for a few years between say 2012 to 2014, 2015. And then after I completed my MPhil, that's what I came to New Zealand for. I did master's of philosophy because I had a, ma- a master's by coursework from the States because uh, I wanted to do a PhD eventually. Did the master's of philosophy, very much focused on uh, nutrition while dieting for strength athletes and bodybuilders and had a really tough go of managing a full-time coaching client load while doing that. And I very fortunately got a uh, the vice chancellor scholarship for my PhD. And that's when I got word that I got that, which was in late 2013 i basically closed the doors on coaching and just let the current roster i had slowly deplete slowly deplete mm. and it never fully depleted is basically um kind of the way it works like you have some of those people you work with for a real long time so for example bryce lewis i coached him into his first powerlifting meet in 2010 and then i've been working with him ever since and he's kind of right at that point in his career he's not sure if he's going to keep competing so now i'm actually I can actually say if Bryce does decide to fully step away that I will have coached someone through the entirety of their powerlifting career, which is kind of wild when you think about it. And for those who don't know who Bryce Lewis is, he's um, a four-time U.S. national champion, uh, 93 and 105, and he's a silver medalist in 2017 IPF Worlds in the 105s and then won the world championship in 2018 in Calgary, which was really, really cool. and I've worked with a few other prominent athletes. Like I think the the way I was able to get to such a high number of online coaching clients, and then I you know had to put the flag down, or I the quality would have decreased, was actually uh, Matt Ogus, who people might know if they were into the YouTube bodybuilding scene in the 2011 to 2015 era. He was a client who I coached for a couple seasons. We had a really great relationship, and he went on to keep kind of doing his thing. And now he's got kids, and he's got his own business, but he kind of inspired a whole generation of people mm-hmm. um, in the natural bodybuilding space. And then we inherited a lot of those clients at 3DMJ because we coached Matt. And we've had similar things like that over the years. Like I had the privilege of coaching Jeff Nippert into his first WMBF Pro Show. So we got a big bump from that. And then kind of more recently uh, since COVID, coming up on three years, I've been working with Jessica Bittner. So I coached her into her entrance into the new weight class division in the IPF 
they changed the weight classes in the women's division out of the 76s. She moved up from 69 to 76, and I had the privilege of working with her into 2021 and 2022 Worlds, which she won, which was a really cool experience for me. Um, and that was very different than working with Bryce, obviously. Bryce, we kind of had collaborated all the way to him advancing through the ranks. And with Jess, I was like, okay, you're already a junior world champion. Um, and you've competed at a very high level. So I need to find a way to help you and not mess this up. And only now are we getting to that point where our relationship is such that we're being a little more experimental. And also the division has gotten much more competitive. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, like you said, I had the privilege of working with her uh, as her only platform coach, which was kind of scary for me. Because for those who don't know, when you work internationally online and you're a personal coach of high level lifters, they get selected for a national team. And then you are basically like the assistant to the national head coach. Um, and, you know, they value your input and hopefully you guys have a good relationship and, you know, with the athlete and everyone's on the same page, but you're not the head coach of the team because they're representing mm-hmm. their country. So it's a little different. So, but this time at Sheffield, because SBD was only allowing one coach per lifter, I was technically the Team Canada head coach for Sheffield and Team Canada was Jess. So it was, um, it was the first time I had coached uh, above the national level as the, oh, that's not true. I'd done it at Commonwealth. It was the first time uh, at a that high level of a competition. And to be honest, there's nothing higher than Sheffield at this yeah. point in terms of prestige. But I think the pressure is, is well because it's a money meet and everyone's competing against each other. Um, where I had been the the platform coach for someone. And that was a really good opportunity for us to meet in person, develop a rapport. And I'm really looking forward to doing it again, although I will be you know primarily helping uh, the Team Canada head coach, uh, Garrett So have you, have you coached in terms of powerlifting then on as a New Zealand coach, an American coach, and a Canadian coach in terms of like an official team capacity? I have, which is kind of yeah. cool, huh? Yeah. Because <laughs> so. I thought, yeah, because I was like, I'm sure you've done a few American, like at least, you know, been it's, on. Have you been on the team then, like on the coaching? Because, I mean, they select like a group of coaches, don't they, for Worlds correct. typically? Yeah, so the rules, uh, they they changed a lot during the teens. So in 2017 at Belarus, I had to get approved by, at the time, what was USAPL for becoming part of the American coaching staff. And I had to get permission from NZPF. And then in 2018, the rules had changed. And I was a coach for NZPF. And USAPL gave me permission to act as a coach to Bryce. So... I was technically a USAPL coach in 2017, a NZPF coach in 2018, and then I was a Canada coach uh, in Sheffield, and I will be a Canada coach at Worlds uh, this year. And then when I've coached at Commonwealth 2022, I was obviously a, a New Zealand coach. So it was, it's, it's been, it's always a slightly interesting thing because it's, uh, there's not Are they gonna, they're going to give you a Canadian passport for that then? That's what I've been asking for. And um, I've even, you know, like I've been a, a, a huge proponent for maple syrup and flannel. Um, and I've been trying to embrace, you know, cold weather. So I, I feel like I'm like getting the cultural experience as You've well. You've got the kindness and the nice stuff from being a Kiwi as well. Like, I mean, that just crosses both. <laughs> 100%. There's a lot both of shared off, cultural sorry. heritage of, you know, apologizing. So it's good. <laughs> so. 
Cool, man. So, I mean, you've, yeah, you've got the athletic experience, you've got the coaching experience at, in these strength sports and over a range of different things as well. You know, like you're not just a one-trick pony, so to speak, um, which probably has its advantages and disadvantages for you in terms of what you have to actually know about um, and how you kind of have to change hats depending probably on who who you're working with and whether it's the, you know, <laughs> what type of training they're needing to do. Yep. Um to get the results that they need, whether there's more of a nutrition emphasis or whether it's more mm. of an actual, you know, what am I doing today in terms of the loading I should be looking at or whatever it is. Um, but then you're also a researcher, Eric. So we're 20 minutes in. We have said that you've got a PhD. So for for those of us who know what a PhD is, they probably already know this, but um, because they'll know that you've done research to get that. But you didn't just finish your research with your PhD. You've been kind of um, actively involved for a number of years, you're working at AUT um, as associate. Is it associate professor? Is it a research associate? A research fellow. Research fellow. Okay. Yeah. Um, yep. And then you're also doing a lot of writing um, with mass as well in terms of research summaries. So there's a bunch um, of stuff there. Sounds like you're a very busy man. You know, if I have one superpower, Hayden, it's that I am very efficient and uh, I'm good with time management. I think people would probably be shocked at how many hours a week I worked if they looked at what I do on paper. Mm. Um, and another thing that people might not know about me just because they hear about the things I'm doing is that all the things I'm involved with are heavily collaborative. Yeah. Like Mass is you know, front-facing. It's myself, Lauren, Mike, and Eric. But there are also, we have a copy editor. We have a graphic designer. Um, and you know, there's like six people involved, seven people involved there, you know, 3d muscle journey has three support staff, people, four head coaches, me, Andrea, Brandon, and then Melissa, who's our, uh, like our, our front facing customer service person. So there is a double digit number of people involved in 3d muscle journey. And then even my books, I'm the chief author on them. Um, but you know, Andrea and Andy have really helped kind of run the, the the business side of it to some degree mm -hmm. and 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 you know the strategy and tactics and sales and all that so i put myself in a position in all of the organizations i'm a part of to do what i'm best at um and then uh, the efficiency side of it really helps so you know there are some weeks where i'm not working any more than 15 20 hours and there's other weeks that those weeks have subsidized where i'm working 40 to 50. um yeah. but that's really the only way i can train you know five to 10 hours a week, depending on what my goals are at the time. Um, but yeah, so anyway, to answer your question more directly, uh, yeah, so I like to explain to people that the master's is kind of like dipping your toe in and getting, if you do a thesis, of course, or dissertation, depending on the size of it, you get the first experience of, of what it even is to do research. And you have, there's, as there should be a fair amount of handholding from a good supervisor who explains to you like, what is research? How do you do it? What is publishing? What is even is academia? Because your undergrad really doesn't expose you to that part of what a university does or is. Um, you just see that, oh, I have these professors and you just think they teach all the time, but actually they're doing all this other stuff outside of the classroom. Um, and then your PhD is rightly described as a, as a terminal degree because it is the one that basically is the on the job training to become a researcher. You've understood what it is from the masters, and now you're tackling this three-year goal, which is unlike anything you've done and can be quite challenging. And that's if you're doing it, you know, on time. Many times it's four years. And that's also if you're doing it in a country like New Zealand or Australia or the UK, uh, where there's no coursework associated with it. But if you're in North America, there often is 
a little more backloaded coursework while in this part of the world it's a little more front-loaded you get more uh topic specific work in your bachelor's and then the coursework in your master's but anyway mm. the um the, after the phd i were right towards the end of it um i took a, a small proportional role as a research fellow at aut because i specifically wanted to stay involved in research and as you know aut is 90 percent at least especially in the School of Sport and Rec, um, student-driven research, meaning that it is master's and PhD students who come, want to study sports science, and they produce research. And all of our systems are built in place to facilitate student-led research. So the way to stay involved in research is to be a supervisor. And I really love supervising. I find the mentoring experience and working with people who were basically in the same spot I was just few years prior and now I guess it's more like geez 10 years prior you know <laughs> that's when I started my PhD it was in 2013 um, you know so I have students from Croatia Malaysia Canada the US Denmark um, and of course New Zealand and, and Australia right now so they're moving in many cases their lives um, across the world they're dealing with immigration they're figuring out how do they pay rent in an expensive city like Auckland while also, you know, doing this muscle nerd thing and then keeping their own training going and finding a way to pay the bills, you know, whether that's they have a scholarship or not. A lot of my, my current students are like full-time online coaches. So it's, um, it's a really cool experience to be able to use my, uh, my journey to help them in theirs. And it also allows me to collaborate with very bright, uh, young researchers who want to kind of carry on the stuff that I was doing, you know, because as you know, research typically leaves you with more questions than answers. And we've got really cool research happening now. Like Kedrick Kwan is not only a prominent nutrition powerlifting coach with his own business, but he's also doing research that's never been done on what's the best way to preserve maximal strength while making weight in a two hour kind of framework like you would for the IPF. Um, so that's that's one of those topics I remember when I was initially looking at my PhD that I was really intrigued to mm-hmm. do. Um, so I remember when I first heard about his projects and stuff, I'm like, oh, this is awesome because this is this was the thing that when I initially was looking at a PhD, I was like, oh, that would be a really fascinating topic. But I don't think there was probably the expertise um, necessarily available to me, you know, to access remotely at that time. Um, so it's kind of cool to see that, like, not only are we looking at these things, but the knowledge or the knowledge of the staff and the knowledge in the Institute as well, like has kind of expanded um, yes. even further to kind of allow that kind of stuff to happen. Um, it's yeah. You know, having someone like yourself as a research fellow, it just, that probably opens up opportunities to quite a lot of um, students to do maybe more, a lot more like applied and like ecologically valid, I guess, type um, of studies because you've got that real hands-on practical been there in the trenches done that but also you're the nutrition guy as well as the strength guy you know like um, which is kind of a helpful dual school skill set to have with a lot of these topics because there is a lot of overlap I uh, know I appreciate you saying that and I 100% agree and it's even expanding beyond me so my first PhD student to graduate that's Alyssa Joyce Spence and now she is a full-time lecturer she teaches uh, yeah biomechanics uh, at, at AUT and also as a supervisor. So that's really cool because she did her PhD specifically on the role of stretching 
as a means to potentially enhance performance in powerlifters. And then mm-hmm. just looking at range of motion and how that impacts and, and joint range of motion and then actual lift range of motion. You know, she didn't get to do everything she wanted in her PhD because of COVID, but she did get all the skills necessary. And, you know, now she's a coach with TSA. She is a high level lifter in New Zealand. Um, she's an extremely good power lifter and she's also an academic. So now we have skill sets beyond my own. She's yeah. like, I. so I sit in two research groups, strength conditioning and sports physiology and nutrition. She sits in two research groups as well. Skip, which is sports kinesiology and injury prevention, basically biomechanics and then strength conditioning. So now, uh, yeah, because I've been able to, to kind of pay it forward, I have, we're expanding the team and now kind of like, you know, Alyssa and I are like, uh, you know, you're, you're Batman and Robin, or I guess Batman and Batman. She's just as awesome. And, uh, <laughs> and we're, we're able to expand the team. So she is now the supervisor on two different students who I work with. You know, there's mm-hmm. Jason Clark, who's one of the, the prominent yep. coaches in New Zealand. You know, he's, he just recently coached Evie Corrigan. We were hanging out in, uh, in Sheffield together. He's doing his master's nearly done he's doing a great job he's looking at the experiences of online coaches and powerlifting and their athletes which is pretty cool um and then i mentioned the gentleman from denmark mm-hmm. um he's a coach for team denmark he's an aut phd student his name is christian and he's working with myself uh and, and Alyssa, as well as mike the primary um to give mike mike we a big shout um and he is specifically looking he was at my, my primary supervisor as well exactly and people don't know this and mike doesn't advertise it but back in the day he used to be a power lifter you know yeah like, yeah and his um brother as well um down canterbury ways been involved yep. in powerlifting for yonks <laughs> yeah ages so there, there's there's a little bit of a lineage there and it's mm. pretty cool to see and it won't be too long before you know kedrick graduates and he's you know, probably sticking around and, and we'll, we'll, we'll see, but we're, we're trying to grow things. We're deepening the connection between AUT and NZPF and we're making the little cohort of us muscle nerds at AUT a, a stronger contingent. Well, I think and, like when you, yeah. when you look at that, like um, Mike was probably one of the ones that drew a lot of those muscle nerds, as you call them. And, you know, like he was the guy that I wanted to work with because yep. of the research he had done and the involvement he had had, you know, the links with powerlifting and maximal strength. I was like, I've got to have this guy. Like, and he's in Auckland. He's so accessible. Like, um, so that was kind of what led to my whole PhD was because I knew of Mike and I knew of his research and I knew he was interested in powerlifting. And, you know, it was kind of, a, it seemed like a no brainer to me that I could get him and I could get Justin and I could get Matt who's local and I could have this great team of people who, although they're not all in the same place, you know, it's, it was 2014 at the time, you know, there was ways to communicate back then, you know, for those of us who were, or those of us who were, t- you know, at school back then, we still had video calls uh, 10 years ago. That's so, right. <laughs> so it was kind of at that stage where it opened up those ability, that ability to actually do a PhD and have your supervisors be in completely different locations, but all have unique skill sets that you could draw on and you had the privilege of being able to kind of access, you know, um, and it worked really well for me, you know, because they all had different skills, they had all had different backgrounds, um, but they were all generally, you know, like, as you said, muscle nerds, they were guys that were interested in getting strong and how people get strong. And, you know, it was nice to be able to bring those guys together at that time. And it's awesome to hear that AUT has expanded that to be even more muscle nerds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because people have, you know, epochs and arcs to their career. I remember when I first got there, it was not shortly after that, that Colm Wolf of strongman fame did his masters and he was working with nigel harris 
and Nigel used to do a little bit of strongman, you know, he, he's moved into working more at the faculty level and being interested in, you know, health and high intensity inter- interval training. But, you know, at, and, you know, Justin Keogh is now in Australia and mm-hmm. he's a little more focused on, on like health. He's expanded his thing. So as those folks have, have gone there, like we've stepped up. So we're keeping that lineage of strength, which is pretty cool at AUT. And it's uh it's a real cool thing to, to see that it's attracting a lot of international students as well. And it's a big privilege to be able to work with them. I feel like we've just done an advertising segment for AUT and then everyone should go study there. And, you know, Eric could be your supervisor. And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they, now I just need to work out how do I get a commission on their tuition? Because right now, like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, if everyone signs up, only AUT benefits. So, yeah, <laughs> just use the code HELMS10 when you That's fill right. out your AUT <laughs> application form. <laughs> get 10% off your tuition directly to me. If that yeah. was the case, maybe I'd work a uh, larger FTE. At, uh, <laughs> You'd be advertising that code everywhere, I think. If it was international fees and you got 10% of them, mate, that would be a mm-hmm. good little side hustle. <laughs> I would just have a QR code on my hat. <laughs> just yeah. scan it on the video. <laughs> anyway, man, we, we're over 30 minutes in. We've talked. Um, I think the problem is when, when we get someone like you and I together and we start talking, we're going to be able to yarn about random things that I don't know if other people are necessarily going to be as interested as us, but there'll be some people that are. That's the nature of these things, right? So um, for those for those of you who weren't so interested in the AUT um, advertising segment there, they, they have not sponsored this podcast, but they're welcome to if they wish. Um, they just need to reach out. <laughs> um, but now the, you mentioned there about um, Nigel getting into the high-intensity interval training, and I sort of thought I could use that as a bit of a segue um, into what, I sort of got you on to discuss today, and I think we've got pl- we've got plenty of time to go through that. Um, and basically, people have heard me on the podcast talk about combining strength training and cardio. And as the Stronger Dads podcast, um, obviously strength is an emphasis, right? Like I love strength training. That's what led me to do this. Is I was trying to kind of think of how could I help others who are in a similar situation to me. Um, where they may be new dads, they may just be people that are actually time poor. You don't even have to be a dad to probably get benefit from some of this stuff, right? If you don't have a whole lot of extra time in your day, a lot of the things we talk about are still going to be applicable um, because you're trying to be efficient with your time. You're trying to get multiple things in. But then the other aspect of that with stronger dads is I don't want it just to be a strength training thing. I don't want it just to be lifting. Um, There's an element of there of being a better human, but there's also an element there for me of that actually – being a stronger person means looking after yourself as well, right? And so from my perspective, when I first got into adding in more regular cardio again, let's say, um, was probably about six months after we'd had Harvey. And I'd kind of just been neglecting it because as you do as a strength athlete, it's easy to kind of put it off and say, oh, this isn't, you know, I I don't need to do this. It's going to interfere. Or, you know, you'll, you'll make up an excuse essentially in your head, even though with my scientific background, I know that there are ways to do, you know, aerobic training and not have an interference effect. Like I've done CrossFit where I've got stronger and that as well. You know, I've delved into that world. There's there's another avenue for you to go with your strength sports, Eric. Is, is CrossFit a strength sport though? <laughs> <laughs> or is it just strength sport plus some other stuff? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it was good for strength sports. True. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I kind of know that you can do both and you can you can do that even in a suboptimal way, potentially mm-hmm. in that type of aspect, right? We're just doing crazy amounts of reps as well as running and all these things. And you can still make progress in both fields where your max lifts might go up and your, you know, monostructural type running or rowing might improve as well at the same time. 
Um, but for me at that period, it was like, a, hey, Hayden, you're actually like one of the things you need to think about is your longevity. Because with a child, it's like, well, actually, you want to be around, right? That's probably one of the things that if you can do something that increases the odds of that happening, obviously, there's things that you can't always control, but you can increase the chances, right? Um, that you will be around for longer. That was something I thought, hey, you need to actually emphasize this. Like if you actually <laughs> are serious about this whole parenting thing and wanting to be here for your child, one of the aspects there is don't just, you know, work on one aspect of your health. You kind of need to work on a bit more of the spectrum. Um, and when I was younger and, you know, getting up into the 93s and having two chins, it wasn't as big a deal to me at that stage, right? I, I just wanted to be as strong as I could at that time. But your priorities shift. Life changes. You get into your 30s and you realize, actually, you probably should do a little bit of cardio, right? Um, so that's what I wanted to get you on to kind of give us a little bit of a summary and an insight into the latest kind of literature, because I know that you've done um, a few little reviews of this stuff as part of Mass. I'm not actually sure if you've published on concurrent training, but wasn't wasn't sure on that one. But yeah, even if you I've... haven't, I'm not too worried because I know that you know the literature, <laughs> which is the key, right? You don't have to have published in it to be able to read and understand and interpret and analyze and critique the literature. <laughs> um, That's fair. So like from my perspective, it was a, I knew that I could do this if I did it in a way that was appropriate, but then also I just had a reason to do my cardio. And so for me, it was wanting to understand this area a bit. So I knew how I could structure my own training, right. Mm -hmm. um, to be able to get the best of both worlds. Um, and then it's just fallen into that trap that happens with me where I start doing something and I want to get better at it. And so actually now I'm focusing more on my running probably than I am on my lifting. Um, but that's just the nature of me. It's not everyone's going to fall into that trap and love running as much as I do now. Um, but sure. anyway, Eric, that's that's enough blabbing from me about this. Can you tell us a little bit about what um, we mean when we talk about this thing, concurrent training? Maybe give yeah. us a little bit of a history around this thing that sounds intimidating but may not be called the interference effect. Um, and just kind of take us through some of that and and even if we could finish with some applications of how how could someone kind of ensure that they're getting the best of both worlds i guess if that's what they want to do 100 percent, yeah no i think that's a great intro because you did a lot of the groundwork for me and you know crossfit i think it's kind of like the sport of concurrent training really you know um which i think is kind of cool in its own way and ultimately the whole idea of uh why concurrent training is something to to have a over for most lifters is it all goes back to research that started three years before I was born in 1980 by Hickson. And this is a classic study that was looking to see if, okay, if I want to train for endurance and if I want to train for strength at the same time, how does that fare compared to training for strength or only endurance? And I think it was a, a very important foundational study um, because it established the existence of the understanding of an interference effect. And what the interference effect just means is that these two adaptations can interfere with each other, and more so that the endurance work interferes with strength work. And this is something that was established with basic two hypotheses kind of underlying it. There's the molecular interference effect, and there's kind of the practical interference effect. And if I was to kind of explain what the hell those mean, um, the practical interference effect is just saying, hey, if I asked you to do a five by five today, would that be hard? And you're like, yeah, man, that's a hard workout. And like, what if I told you to run a couple miles first? Would that make it easier? You're like, no, that'd be terrible, you know? Um, or what if the day prior? You're like, oh, that's still hard, you know? Um, so that's kind of the practical side is just thinking about 
fatigue and you know stimulus balance right and just recovery uh, and how long it takes to recover after a given stimulus and how do you essentially periodize your training in such a way that allows uh, these overlapping stresses to minimally have a negative impact and for you to progress. Then the molecular interference effect is basically looking at, okay, what does the adaptation cascade physiologically look like after you've done an endurance training bout or a resistance training bout? And you see that there's many ways that they are kind of going counter to one another. So you could mm -hmm. look at this from the actual types of molecular responses from an MPS, AMPK, and get real complicated, which I'm not going to do. Um, or you can just think about it from a more practical, like what type of adaptations do you need to be a really good marathon runner versus being a very good squatter? And there are fiber type differences. There are energy system differences. Uh, there's a potential cost just to having that much mass on your body from a running economy perspective, where if that's all contractile tissue, yeah, you have to squat a heavier weight when you stand up, but those 15 kilos of muscle are probably going to move a whole lot more than 15 kilos, right? Um, so when you look at it from that perspective, you can see that the adaptations themselves are different and that there's an opportunity cost and in some cases potentially even divergent adaptations that are mm. not helpful to one another. And this was initially shown to give you that history you're talking about, like I said, by Hickson in 1980. And the first thing I want to point out about this 1980 study is that it looks a lot different than the typical study that we get to do in the lab most of the time where we have people in two or three times a week. So what they did is they took a group of people and they had them training five days a week for 30 to 40 minutes for strength training. So that's that's a good split that you know a bodybuilder or a recreational lifter might follow now. And then they had an endurance group that was training six days a week for 40 minutes, you know, cycling. So it's a legitimate, like I'm a cyclist, right? And then they had a strength and endurance group they just did both, like all of it, you know? So, and what they found was that while the endurance adaptations were similar between the strength and endurance group and the endurance group, the strength group actually got stronger than the strength endurance group. And there was an interesting time course effect too. So for the first, I think seven weeks of this 10 week study, uh, you saw roughly similar gains in the strength and endurance group and the strength group. But then they started to fall off and even decline the strength and endurance group as they got into the final stages of it. And this is what coined the interference effect. And I think it was looked at in very black or white terms for a long time. And kind of the, the initial response to this type of study was, well, shit, I'm going to take the elevator and I'm going to park closer when I go grocery shopping. Don't talk about the elevator, Matt. I thought you might still be sensitive about that topic after Sheffield. Well, that is, uh, you know, that, that, that's more of a thing. I don't want to bring it up to Jess because she might assault me, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> but the, uh, that, that's an insight. That's a deep cut. People won't get that, but that's all right. <laughs> um, but I will say that that perspective has shifted over time and it's a good thing that it has as we've gotten more nuanced data. And that's kind of the way that the typical uptake of science communication is A versus B, A is better than B is terrible, right? <laughs> Um, but I think a really interesting way of looking at this is, wow, these people were crushing a full schedule of lifting and cycling and did at least as good as the strength group for like seven weeks. And maybe they just should have just deloaded, you know. So like that, that's probably the more nuanced take looking at the study in isolation. But the good news, we don't have to look at the study in isolation because over the years, this has been replicated. And I think it's an important thing to note that when you do the first study on a topic, you're trying to observe an effect. So imagine if 
there was not a difference over 10 weeks between the strength and endurance group and the strength group. This, the line of research would have just stopped. Like, oh, shit, okay, we can handle a lot more than we think. There's no interference effect. Let's move along, right? But because there was an effect, now the next step for researchers is to figure out, well, okay, what are the thresholds of how much you have to do or the intensity or what type of resistance training performance is affected? Is it different in men than women? Is it different in older individuals? What about the time of day you train? Well, what can we do to mitigate this interference effect if we want to have this high, high, high volume of training? That's, or that's the thing as well that I've always thought when you look at the concurrent training literature or the just concurrent training as a thing, right? Um, most of us who have grown up and played team sports at some stage in our lives, right? If you're training or if someone is training for those sports at a professional level or at a really high level, right? Um, they are doing concurrent training all the time because they'll be get doing strength and power work. Um, and power potentially is even a, a, a different kettle of fish compared to strength in terms of interference stuff as well. Um, but similar. Um, but like, they've always been doing this. So like whenever I, when I was younger and I was looking at these things as like in my early science years and people talked about this current concurrent training, that was always one of the things that I came back to was like, I looked up at the super rugby players or the all blacks, you know, being a New Zealand guy, New Zealand lad. It's like, those are the, the, the sort of sports people that we look up to, but they're big man and yeah. they're strong. And yep. then they're smashing the beep test, you know, back in the day, the beep test, you know, right. I think they do Broncos or something now, but like, you saw essentially these people that were almost defying what you were reading in the literature. You're like, hang on, this has to be able to be done because or else you wouldn't have really strong, powerful, yet fit people playing rugby. You know, like it, <laughs> they'd all be like either really fit or really strong and they wouldn't be able to do the other bit. But we can, we see that people can do both. Um, so practically, I've sort of always had that in the back of my mind is like, it has to be doable to some extent because we have people that do do it and train in that way for this thing called sport, you know, that they get paid money to do. Um, so for us average Joes or who are recreational or who might not be necessarily wanting to compete at an elite level, it's like you can probably do both and you'll be fine because here's an yep. exhibit of someone who has. If you want to be, you know, the best of the best powerlifter or the best of the best endurance, okay, that's where some of that nuance I sort of think must come into play a bit more. Yeah, and this is really a communication thing. So you get, like I was mentioning before, the the default position, I think it's just the way the human mind works when they see an A, ver, a versus B comparison is they put them into black or white terms. Mm -hmm. And some, somewhat the design of the way applied research studies go leads into that, but some of the ways just humans think, right? And the other piece of it is the people who are interested in this type of thing are often pretty serious about their lifting goals like when the bodybuilding community gets hold of something they're always using the optimal lens but that only applies to one percent of people who lift weights right or should and the reality is is that even in this initial really hardcore study by hickson you saw good gains in the group that was doing both so instead of interpreting it as oh cardio kills my gains it's cardio makes my strength training not as effective as doing strength training alone but pretty close. And that's mm -hmm. a very different interpretation than what people typically get when they hear about the interference effect, where they yeah, think they're 100%. gonna, and people ask me, will I lose my gains? I'm like, no, no, all the research shows that you're making gains, but they're not as good as the group doing strength. And even that has actually gotten softened over time. And what gains means has softened or changed or, or needs to be more nuanced. So exactly right. 
the the intuitive anecdotal experience of just watching sport it's not that it's impossible by any means and that's a really great framing to be like okay okay that helps me understand what is the research actually saying it's saying oh it's not as good like of course a weightlifter is probably going to have a better snatch or clean and jerk than a you know rugby player who uses a snatch and clean and jerk to develop power and strength but has to do a whole bunch of wind sprints mm-hmm. and of course the person doing wind sprints is probably going to be able to run more 400 meter re- repeats than you know the guy in the 105 pluses who's well over 105 but who can snatch <laughs> you know 200 kilos right so i think that's the kind of perspective that that that, that is important to have and the research is now making that even even clearer over time. So what started with this one study by Hickson, I think the first time I really saw this meta-analyzed was by Wilson and colleagues in like 2011. And mm-hmm. they looked specifically at different modalities of cardio. They looked at different outcomes, hypertrophy, strength, and power. They looked at different durations, frequencies, and then they started to actually quantify these effect sizes. And by 2011, the effect sizes of how much of a negative impact does lifting have, or sorry, does cardio have on lifting, they were starting to come down. And we started to see the first hints of where we are today that, hey, you know, walking and running might be a little worse than cycling. And you think, oh, why is that? Oh, okay, well, cycling doesn't have any centric component. There's no impact. Oh, and the effect is larger for power. And then it cascades down a little bit for strength and it cascades down even more for hypertrophy. And you go, oh, okay, well, I guess... Sure, I can build muscle even if energy systems are different because, as we know today, hypertrophy training can encompass a lot of different types of approaches. Yeah. And then strength and power is more specific, but it does make sense that a hyper, you know, fast, you know, like the power is, if anything, the most directly opposed to having a ton of muscular endurance. Because when we look at, let's say, like fiber type distribution in power lifters, were ironically named power lifters, but really they should be called like, you know, strength lifters. Shout out to Mark Ripito, I guess. Um, they are, doesn't matter how quickly they complete their one arm, they just need to finish it. And indeed, when you control for the cross-sectional area of a fiber, whether it's slow twitch or whether it's fast twitch, the force production is quite similar. And the time to peak twitch and peak force production of a motor unit that's composed primarily of slow twitch or fast twitch fibers is not so much different that it matters for powerlifting. We're talking hundreds of milliseconds on a lift that sometimes for a third attempt can take a double digit number of full seconds, right? And only if the stick is in the very, very bottom, like off the floor, off the chest or out of the hole, is that gonna make a difference. And so for most of the mm-hmm. time, your fiber type distribution doesn't matter for a, for a powerlifter. You just need to have a lot of thick fibers, right? Now for a weightlifter, for a shot putter, for a sprinter, that might be a different story. And that is probably why we see quote unquote power in this very first meta-analysis I was aware of in 2011, be a little more negatively impacted by getting more slow twitch fibers and the more oxidative uh, shift of all of your, you know, my- myosin isotypes, uh, uh, phenotypes, right? So anyway, all this is to say that we move from Hickson showing this clear effect to 2011 showing this graded effect that could be modified and now if we shift all the way another 10 years, so we're just traveling across this course of research to Schumann, 2021. Um, this is where the interference effect is really getting just a lot less scary. Uh, so there's a, a good meta-analysis by Schumann, compatibility of concurrent aerobic and strength training for skeletal muscle size and function, an updated systematic review and meta-analysis. So this is a good example of the more research that's done, the more we can get a 
a better understanding of what exactly is happening. And in this one, there was actually no significant interference effect. Um, P-values were, were moderate uh, for both hypertrophy and strength, and the effect sizes we're talking about are well below small. And there was only a small effect size for power. And I think the take-home here is that the thing we really need to worry about is the practical interference effect. And that is only an issue when it becomes a practical issue of recovery. So I think it's actually useful to step out of the mindset we have of we're talking about the interference effect if your goals are strength or hypertrophy, which most people's goals are, and to think specifically about how do I balance the workload and the training demands of what I'm doing? And then it just becomes a discussion of training, planning, and periodization. And the only time it's really an issue, I think, is if you are trying to develop you know, elite levels of power and endurance at the same time. And, and then you're going to have to take somewhat of a hit. But I don't think that describes nine out of 10 people who go to the mm. gym. Nah, nah. And I think if people that I guess the, the part that I sort of think with that as well as and from my own experiences of the running be my biggest emphasis, it's actually quite funny for me how little of an impact because I'm quite adapted to the strength stimulus. Like I don't end up, you know, really sore, even if I've done a pretty hard you know full body powerlifting session on a saturday i can still get out and do my intervals on the sunday and i'm fine you know and that's a long run and it's it's not a big deal. i'll be a little bit sore but i know that i can get through it just fine you know and if i met if i was able to manage my week slightly better and separate those two out but they just happen to be the days that i have the most time right um then i imagine that i would be able to do even slightly better um in that interval type session. But for me, I think, well, hey, when it's an event day, I'm just not going to be doing a powerlifting session the day before. And I know that I'm going to feel better <laughs> than I do on my longer, harder days, right? Like, so there's a psychological advantage for me there thinking, oh, I'm going to feel better on the day, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's definitely something I've observed is that I can do both and I don't end up feeling like I am compromising stuff too much unless there's those specific times like i mentioned with you know the two longer training days of the week having to be close together that's the only time that i notice something substantial in saying that i am not squatting 600 pounds anymore i am not bench pressing over 150 like i none of those things exist for me at the moment <laughs> for me at the moment so if you told you know if, if hayden from 10 years ago pre-commonwealth champs was listening to hayden today he'd probably say yeah 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 but um, and I think that's important is that, well, actually you would just probably change the way that you did that. Right. I probably wouldn't mm -hmm. use running as my mode. I probably wouldn't be training to a volume where I wanted to try and improve at a half marathon. Right. Because that wouldn't be important to me. It might just be, Hey, how would you manage to keep your body weight in check a little bit better by using some cardio? How would you keep your health in check, your blood pressure down a little bit more using some cardio? And those would be the things which would mean the dose would be so much smaller, um yep. and the dose makes the poison right so it's kind of like if you try to do too much of both things like would you say hickson study obviously trying you know one plus one is two it's not one now like it's not 100 percent training load you've just completely blitzed that person with volume um so yeah it's an interesting one um how how do you or do you even broach or encourage this topic with any of your athletes or athletes that you've worked with in the past like are there people you've had to kind of work through this with because i know in something like bodybuilding typically cardio is done right there's normally like a low level aerobic training stimulus that is regularly used to try and you know help with reducing some body fat if it's required for someone or can be is that is that an easier sell than to the powerlifter 
you know, it depends on the generation of the bodybuilder because the as the interference effect has gotten less scary, and as I was mentioning, you know, when something like this that could even possibly threaten your gains enters the the, the bodybuilding community, they take a pretty extreme stance on it and a better safe than sorry kind of approach. And one of the things that came out of the fear of the interference effect was, well, we should shift all our cardio over to high-intensity interval training. And this idea was basically saying, well, listen, our goal is to burn, you know, calories. We can do that with, you know, a lower volume of hit. And now we're using the same energy systems are lifting and we'll be fine. And this is kind of one of those things where you lose the forest for the trees. You're focused so much on the molecular interference effect, which is, again, really not a big deal for hypertrophy now that we have mm -hmm. this, got this updated data to the point where now you're actually creating potentially more of a practical interference effect because, you know, a bodybuilder is actually doing a sufficient volume of, you know, full range of motion, including the eccentric, close to failure, lower body training to where muscle damage is, is you know, part and parcel of what you're doing. And now you're also going to be like sprint cycling or sprinting or like just making a elliptical look like it's going to explode, like whatever modality you use. Right. And that can be fun in a calorie deficit either. It's not. It's absolutely not. I've done it at the peak of the, the hit era. I, I was one of these people doing, you know, like four hit sessions a week of 20 intervals. And the thing it led to for me, or at least one of the contributing factors was a hamstring tear while I was doing deadlifts. You know, so this was kind of the wake up call I had where I was absolutely realized I was missing the force for the trees. And now we actually have data to back that up. Like there was mm -hmm. a study uh, that came out, I think, just last year. And there's actually a meta-analysis that was looking at uh, hit training and that for specific types of hit training, there actually can be an interference effect. But it's not interference. It's just you're tired. Right. So but I think uh, probably the best study that shows it is one by and I'm going to mispronounce this Dragutinovich. Uh, that's the acute effects of concurrent high-intensity interval cycling and bench press loading on upper and lower body explosive strength performance. And they found that basically doing, you know, like hit on a cycling exercise had a negative effect on like your velocity at 60% of 1RM on bench, right? So now we're going, well, what the heck's going on here? We're using the same energy system. How could that happen? It's like, bro, you're tired. But that, that, that's how it happens, you know? Like it's that simple. So I think just understanding that uh, you do have to still balance the stresses is a really important piece. Yeah, and it makes sense that if you are doing something that's making you more tired, well, obviously that's going to interfere with your training, right? You can't really burn the candle at both ends, so to speak, and expect to make progress. Like, there is a real, like, total amount of stress that you can put on a body. So if we're doing something that's really hard, the thing for me with those types of intervals as well is mentally that they're so draining, um, like one of the things with my running that I like is that most often I'm doing like zone two type cardio work, you know, where you're keeping the heart rate relatively low. It doesn't take a lot of mental motivation to pop my shoes on and get out the door and go for a jog to listen to a podcast. You know, like it's it's simple, right? Whereas if you tell me that I'm doing like a Tabata or something like that, well, hey, man, I'm going to have to get pumping some some sort of tunes that are going to get me in the zone and I'm actually going to have to work hard. Um, and it's a lot harder to sort of mentally in my mind at least psych yourself up for that to an extent because you know that you're going to have to exert a high effort um, which is a very different stimulus yes it might be quicker um, but I definitely think there's a trade-off there 
um, especially when you're wanting to try and maximize the strength gains or the hypertrophy gains. And that is the part that should be making you most tired, right? You shouldn't be tiring yourself with the cardio, which is a nice to have for those sort of athletes. It's yeah, it's like a secondary training thing that you're trying to get in, right? Exactly. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And it's, it's a very myopic view of just kind of looking at, Oh, I just need to do the same energy system. Cause if that was true, like then you would expect, like if just doing the same energy system of training would remove any negative effect on your training, then another set of squats you could add, right? Like, you know, yeah. but, but that makes you tired, you know? So it's, 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 it's one of those things that makes a lot of sense in retrospect, but we really went down the rabbit hole with hit um, because of the fear of the interference effect, you know, about probably around 10, 15 years ago. And, and I think where it's only coming right now, like with our bodybuilding clients, what we typically do is we get, the, we, we haven't tracked their step count before they start dieting. And this kind of goes back to your original question. And then we, make a reasonable increase if that's something that can work for their lifestyle and then we hold it there because one of the really common things that when people start to get fatigued from just dieting itself is they will see a decrease in their subconscious physical activity they'll they'll take the 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 elevator more they'll lean on things and you'll you will see their step count go down in mm-hmm. especially in the people where that happens so all of a sudden just tracking that and just keeping it consistent it makes the nutritional adjustments you make more reliable in terms of actually resulting in expected fat loss and everything just makes a little more sense but when you uh purposefully add cardio you can unbeknownst have them become more sedentary in other aspects of life and research actually bears that out as well you get this kind of if you look at some of herman Ponser's work it's the constrained energy model uh, or if you look at the kind of metabolic adaptation work you see oh neat is the most variable aspect even though you do see reductions in BMR and other things, like that's the one that between individuals can change the most. And that might, might be part of describing why some, why some people are more spendthrift or others are thrifty phenotypes. So once you just kind of control for step count, that's not all of, you know, neat or subconscious physical activity, but mm-hmm. it is a large enough component that it seems to make the overall diet a little more effective. Um, and that's something that we clamp. And if we add purposeful cardio, it's not a whole lot. And it's typically because that's more convenient for the person. Like they lived in a cold environment and they have, or they have a home gym or something like that. Like for example, for myself, I typically take a, a longer walk in the morning. Uh, it's just one of my, my, the things I do with my wife. But if I don't get to get that in, I have a rower in my home gym. So I'll jump on that and just go hard for five to 10 minutes. So I'm doing, it's not even really hit, there's no interval, but I just, I have limited time and I'm going to try to burn the same amount of calories, calories I might in 30 or 40 minutes in five or 10, which means I'm going hard on the rower. And that's mm. fine, you know, so long as I think about where that's placed relative to my resistance training, you know. Yeah, and I think that's probably the piece as well. And that's one thing I talked about and um, I think it was episode 12 where I talked about how you could implement cardio as a lifter um, was how would you place these sessions in a week? You know, where if, if you're wanting to get better at both, where should you place a harder or a longer run as opposed to where you would then put your harder or, you know, more volume lifting session and trying to just think logically, just like you would if you were approaching any athlete with a training goal, right? You're going to have days that are higher stress, days that are lower stress, and you're going to move those around to try and kind of allow for um, enough recovery so that at those sort of key sessions, the athlete is feeling up to giving the effort, the effort that they need to, to kind of, I guess, you know, get the adaptations that we want or, or push for those adaptations. Yeah, and exactly. And the research has actually borne out what's kind of the hierarchy of what's likely to to reduce the interference effect the most, if you're even dealing with the kind of volumes of the two where it mm-hmm. might be there at all. And essentially there's this hierarchy. 
where doing them on different days has the largest effect of reducing the interference effect on your strength training. Doing them, say, three or more hours separate from each other um, and ideally doing the resistance training first in that day. So if you had like a, an afternoon uh, lifting session and then an evening run or a morning lifting session and then an afternoon run, that's kind of the next way to reduce the interference effect. And then the one from after that is if you have to do them on the same day and you can't separate them because you're scheduled to simply doing the running afterwards, then you're removing that practical interference effect at least. Um, and those are kind of like the hierarchy of things. But then I would also just refer the listener back to what you just said. How would I think about my training structure throughout the week? Where is my hard lifting day? Like where's my high volume squat session? And then where's my highest intensity or longest duration or just overall most stressful run? I probably want those to be different days and ideally maybe even separated by multiple days. Like I'll squat on Monday and then take a run on Friday, right? And I got the weekend to recover and I can squat again, that type of deal. So that's, I think, exactly the type of thinking that people should take. And then they can kind of use that hierarchical checklist that I recommended. And then while generally people involved in fitness and who are doing this are doing it for health and they want to have adherence and enjoyment, I'm going to say, hey, do whatever modality you want. But for the you know, odd listener who is actually doing this for performance and they just want their maybe their VO2 max to be higher and the mm -hmm. modality they have some choice on. I would also recommend doing things that have lower impact and less of an eccentric component. So, yeah. so for example, cycling, there's not really much of an eccentric. The rower, it's concentric and then it's easy and you just kind of get back to the start position. However, if you're running, as you just know from what you did in the lab, downhill running, like you're going to create a massive amount of muscle damage. I highly do impacts. not recommend that as your form Absolutely of um, concurrent training is don't go on a 15 degree decline and run for half an hour. Not a good Absolutely option not. unless yeah. you're really trying to get sore or you're after some very specific adaptations because that is, it's not a fun time. I'm not looking forward to jumping up off this seat in the next 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> no, and then just wait till tomorrow, bro. So yeah, like <laughs> essentially anything that minimizes joint stress, anything that minimizes muscle damage. And then if you have to do them on the same day, like you were talking about the mental fatigue of, of doing, of having to get yourself up and ready to go hard for, you know, a period of time, you just need to balance those things. And ultimately that just comes down to relatively basic principles of programming and training organization. Yeah. And I think that is the real heart of this, eh? Like if you actually take a well thought out approach to structuring a training week, whether that's a concurrent training week or not, like it's the same ways of thinking. Like there's no, it shouldn't be groundbreaking in terms of you. This is something that you're not used to doing and you can't figure out. Like it should be something you can figure out. Yeah. Um, and even if you are in a situation like myself where you're wanting to optimize running with lifting, like, or try and, you know, sort of balance those two things. Obviously, as I've said, my running is probably more my priority than my lifting at the moment, which kind mm. of dictates how I structure my week and how much running I do as opposed to lifting. But that's like, you, what is your priority at the moment? Is it getting stronger? Well, hey, then that becomes your priority focus and you structure your week around that. Is it the running you want to get better at? Well, then, hey, but you still want to keep some lifting or some strength. Now that's what are my key sessions here and then structure the rest of the week around that to fit. Like, that's kind of how my mindset works is if I'm going through a period where, hey, I want to boost this lift at the moment. Okay, well, maybe I'm going to have to think of some adjustments to my running, but what's the focus? It's basic. It's training principles 101, right? That's, or that's planning 101 or training principles, training, programming, whatever you want to call it. It's one of the first things you think about is how do we balance things? How do we make sure the athlete can do things and can do them to the best of their ability and optimize adaptation? Absolutely. 
you know, one other thing I wanted to cover for you, Hayden, is that, you know, the, the answer of like, how do you do it for a someone who's seeking fat loss? And I use the bodybuilder example for that is really just thinking about it from the caloric expenditure perspective and then not creating interference effect, which is pretty easy if your goal is hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. And then another goal that a lot of people have is exactly what you're talking about is I want to be healthy. And the question is, is, is lifting enough? And the, the data on that is actually pretty interesting. And I think the most accurate perspective is that there is a signal both from exercise and there's a signal from being sedentary rather than kind of thinking them kind of monophasically is that one automatically counteracts the other. Now, the ultimate outcome of that of, let's say, all-cause mortality is influenced by both. But the data we have now would suggest that they are actually separate signals that, unfortunately, there's a negative effect of being super sedentary and there's a positive effect of being active. It's not null and then a benefit of, 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 of exercising of any type. So there is a pretty cool meta-analysis that was done uh, that I think demonstrates this pretty well. Uh, and it was published in 2020. And it is in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, Joint Associations of Accelerometer Measured Physical Activity and Sedentary Time with All-Cause Mortality, a harmonized meta-analysis in more than 44,000 middle-aged and older adults. So what they did is they used all this accelerometer data and they classified people into two different types of three category buckets, either a low amount, a moderate amount, or a high amount of sedentary activity, and either a low amount, a moderate amount, or a high amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity. And when you looked at people who fell into different combinations of those buckets, there was this kind of rank order hierarchy to where the lowest all-cause mortality, the lowest odd ratios for dying (laughs) and what they kind of bootstrapped everyone else's data to was having a low amount of sedentary activity and a high amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity. But that was not quite as good as having a moderate amount of of sedentary activity and a high amount of of, of vigorous physical activity and and on downward. And of course, people who were worst off were had high amount of sedentary activity and a low amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity. And the interesting thing, the unfortunate thing is that the this is kind of the combined effects of an acute phenomenon of when you're really, really sedentary for a period of even days, it can actually have effects on, on physiology. So there's been a number of studies where they've either used time or steps to induce a sedentary experience, right? Mm. So they take somebody for a week and say, okay, you can't get more than 3,000 steps. You got to sit on your butt every day. Or they go, hey, you got to spend eight hours of your day sitting on your butt. And then what they do is they give them an exercise intervention and what they call a challenge or test meal. So they give them basically a bolus of carbohydrate and or fat, and they look at glucose and triglyceride sequestration. So how quickly can they metabolize energy and do something with it after exercise? And essentially this is testing how effective is exercise in someone metabolically for metabolic health if they're typically sedentary or if they're not. And there's a significant difference in how quickly and how effectively people can dispose of blood glucose and blood triglycerides when they've been sedentary for just a week. And then if you think about it, if you're someone who is primarily sedentary and only exercise one or two times a week, that exercise is chronically less effective because you're kind of in a similar state to this experimentally induced condition. And unfortunately, if we kind of connect that to this you know, observational meta-analysis of different categories of activity and sedentariness, it does add up over time and probably contributes to mortality. But we also see that just being active makes a big difference. Mm. So 
then the question is, well, okay, well, how active do I have to be to count as someone in this lower category of sedentariness? And it's really not much. A daily step count of around six to 8,000, depending on the study you look at, effectively eliminates all of the negative effects of being sedentary. And then you can kind of look at all of your physical activity as just like bonus health points, right, if you will. And that might sound like a lot, like if you're someone who's totally sedentary, but honestly, if you get up, you walk 15 minutes away from where you live, and you by default have to walk back, don't get an Uber back, and you do that twice in a day, the rest of your day will probably get you pretty close. And on the days you exercise, those are going to you know, well surpass it. So it is a relatively low barrier to entry. That's not a ton of steps. Uh, the average is what matters more over time. And ultimately, uh, if you're doing cardio, then like you're, you're easily kicking that number up. And you'd be shocked at like what does it take to be in a, a high category of moderate to vigorous physical activity. It's like going on two 30-minute runs per week at a decent VO2 max and you're there, you know, uh, so um, long as you're thing, not completely sedentary I, outside of it. I looked at the met values that they used in some of the other literature um, for what counted as like a vigorous activity. And I'm like, that's something that in my like, tra- you know, my training mindset, that's going for an easy run, like a controlled Correct. zone two heart rate run Yeah, was getting me into the vigorous activity. I'm like, geez, like when I thought vigorous, I'm like, geez, 75 minutes vigorous activity, that's intense. And it's like, actually the definition of vigorous is actually very not vigorous if you're trained. Obviously, if you're yes. untrained, yes, different story, right? That's, that's, that's probably why the categorizations are as they are because this probably isn't preaching to the choir of the converted cardio people that are already doing (laughs) hours and hours of this a week right this is for the people that are looking at how can I actually get healthier and what do I need to do to achieve that so if they didn't classify it like that it probably would do the opposite effect right so yeah it's this oh man that barrier entry is so high I can never do that but if they find out just going on a walk is moderate Mm. physical activity and then oh shit if I go on a, a jog even an easy jog, I'm, I'm crushing it. Then 100%. all of a sudden you get that adherence that we really need at the population level to improve health markers. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So Eric, I know we're getting near the end of time here. Um, what Did you have anything else that, that, that you wanted to add to this discussion at all around concurrent training or anything else that we've touched on today? No, that's the big ones. I wanted people who are really interested in strength to know that Unfortunately, it's probably not enough just to lift three to five days per week if you're really sedentary outside of it. Like, you know, if you have a a job where you're on your feet all the time, then you're probably having no negative health effects. And certainly Mm -hmm. if you go from sedentary to sedentary plus lifting three days a week, that's a huge win. Yeah. But I don't want people to think that, ah, no, mate, I, I lift pretty hard. It's basically cardio. It's all good. And then, you know, when they're in their fifties, be like, oh, why do I need to be on a statin? Like, well, it's because you have 2000 steps per day, (laughs) like, you know, (laughs) you know? So I think, I think it's just important to acknowledge that, yeah, it's probably good to do just a little bit else. It's not going to create any interference effect. And it's actually a very low barrier if, Mm -hmm. if, if to, to get to these kind of the point where you've nullified the negative effect of being sedentary. And then even if you decide, you know what, I actually really like cardio. There's absolutely a pathway for you to do a fair amount of it without it having any negative impact on your resistance training, especially if your goals are hypertrophy or strength. Cool. I think that's a really good summary, Matt. Well, I'm happy to provide it. (laughs) Cool. So we'll just get into those final three. I only gave you uh, a short bit of notice 
um, with these ones here. But every guest that we get on, we ask three questions. Um, and you're my second um, non-dad guest, so I hope that you feel privileged, um, although you got beat into it by Dr. Pack, but he refers to you as the good doctor. So I think that kind of balances out um, you being second on this list um, rather than being number one. So... <laughs> I'll take apologize it. for that, Eric. Um, but just like Dr. Pack, you are a cat dad. You actually showed me um, the cat that was sitting sitting next to you there. So, um, <laughs> so we know that you actually are a dad, and that's actually mm. you know, technically you guys aren't even the non dads on the podcast because you are pet dads. That's right. So there we go. <laughs> um, but let's get into these last three. So the final three questions that we ask, and as I said, um, this is probably more looking at your perspective of coaching. Mm -hmm. um, I mean there's probably some other elements to this as well, but a key parenting tip or word of advice um, for someone who is a new dad. So this is probably someone who has recently had a child in the last few years. Um, so it, there's a whole lot of elements to that, right? Adjusting to change time, those sorts of things, but I'll just hand it over to you and get your perspective on that. Well, absolutely. Well, my, the challenges of, of raising a cat are, are incredible and equal to that of a newborn. Um, <laughs> like, for example, Bucky here next to me in the last two hours has taken two separate naps. So the amount of care that he requires is, is quite high. <laughs> no, but in, in all, yeah, I'm talking about you. Yeah. In all seriousness, um, I have actually coached a fair number of people who have had children. So it's something that while I would never pretend to have firsthand experience with I have found some useful things that have been helpful to um, more than one new parent. And the big one is actually, it's funny you brought up Dr. Pack. It's really shifting your mindset to what do I need to do to not backslide and maybe make a little bit of progress rather than how do I optimize things and then fit my family in, in, in around that. Because I think that tends to create resentment, but at least in you, if not also in your family as well, depending on how <laughs> uh, rigid you are in your headset about that. And you would be surprised by how little it takes to maintain strength and to maintain size. You know, we, we often throw around like 10 plus sets as, as like the optimal range for hypertrophy, 10 plus hard sets a week. But we forget that in that same analysis, we were still seeing hypertrophy in the one to four sets per group, yeah. uh, one to four sets per week group. And, and I'm sure Dr. Pack talked about this extensively, but just doing one to three singles on a movement per week at a reasonable RPE of like a, like a heavy... I probably should have a spotter, but I think I'd be okay if I didn't kind of nine RPE single is enough to not only hold on to strength, but even in power lifters, in some cases, help them slowly gain strength, at least for a short time period. So reha like rehashing your whole approach and thinking about what do I really need to get in and then being a little more creative and willing to change with your schedule, I think is important. Um, a PhD is not a child, but a PhD does take a lot of time. And one of the mistakes... I made during my PhD is I tried to cram all of my training into three days when I was trying to work around the busiest schedule. And these ended up being two and a half to three hour long marathon sessions. And I'd be crushed by the end of them. And it would actually impact my quality of work. Not only like that day, if I did it earlier, I'd typically do it in the afternoon though, and then be done. But the next day, right? So the advantage I was trying to get was, was not even there because I was just so wrecked and like I couldn't sit comfortably and stuff like that hip injury probably had something to do with it. But nonetheless, what I ended up shifting to was doing like six sessions per week of 30 to 45 minutes. And then just mm. auto-regulating where, like, where do I have 40 minutes in a day? Or where should I have 40 minutes in a day? Because right now I'm banging my head against my, my computer and I'm not getting anything done anyway. Why don't I bang my head against some weights, right? 
So um, kind of those quote unquote microdose sessions, I think can do a lot for a new parent. Like, okay, they're, they're asleep right now. I've got 30 minutes or, or, okay, it's your turn, not mine. You know, this time I'm going to take a nap, but next time I get that 30 minute, I'm going to go in and just crush some arms or whatever. Or, I think that was like legitimately what you're describing is almost the approach that when Harvey was really little um, that I used. And I remember this, this probably makes me sound like a bad dad, but um, during the first like a few days, we were at the birthing center still. Um, and I remember there was a period of time where Harvey was asleep. I think there was someone else there helping Sash as well. And I was like, could I just shoot up to the gym for a little bit? And I think I went and did like a half hour session, just some big lifts, like maybe some squats and some bench or something like that. I just did a couple of big exercises that covered pretty much my whole body. Walked in, walked out, and I'd been in there for like less than half an hour type thing. And that was yep. almost the approach that I used for that first, I don't know, probably six months to a year or maybe longer that my resistance training sessions, I would literally be like leaving the house and back in the door within 45 minutes to an hour, you know, and it was, you just had to be rigid and it worked. So I think that's actually like a really solid tip and probably something that if you want to be able to carry on training and at least maintain your gains, maybe still make some strength. It's a valid approach. It shouldn't feel like a, like step backwards. It should feel like yeah. you're actually still able to progress or at least able to maintain, which I think during that period, if you can achieve that, I think you've won. I agree. And it's, it, honestly, it's a huge mindset shift because a lot of people think, listen, I don't want to go to the gym if I'm just going to muck around That's it. or like, like, what's the point if I'm just going to spend 30 minutes and just rushing through a session, I might as well not go. And that is a completely incorrect mindset. hundred percent. And I, if you're like, no, but I'm an extreme person like that, I'd, I'd rather just take the next three months off. It's like, bro, like if, if, if that's too hard for you to do, maybe you shouldn't be a parent. Like that's hard, you know, <laughs> like you can shift your mindset. This is really, it's, it's in actually, it's, technically it is infinitely more valuable to go to the gym for a quick 30 minute session and get in what you can than it is to skip it. And you would be surprised at how effective that can be at holding the line. Um, even while you're getting, you know, four hours of sleep a night. So it, I, I, uh, once I could get the, the parents I was working with to kind of flip that switch, they were shocked at how little regression they had. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah. As I said, I think it's a fantastic tip and especially that whole, it applies with lots of things, right? Doing something is always better than doing nothing. If you've Absolutely. only got half an hour, use that half an hour. Don't waste it because, you know, it's all you've got and you can actually make a surprising amount of progress or get a surprising amount of work in when you're actually motivated to do it and you'll feel better after it too, to be honest. Um, yes. Second question on these final three is the most helpful new habit that you've implemented in the past year. It doesn't have to be limited to training. This could be outside of that. It could be outside of parenting, anything like that. Just a habit that you've implemented that you've found valuable for yourself. Yeah, I think um, I was talking earlier about how when I don't get my steps in, because some some days it's just my schedule doesn't allow it, um, that I get in a, a rowing session. On That is only something I was able to start because of contest prep. And we actually, at the end of last year, purchased the uh, the rower. And we, we just needed that. I needed that motivator to actually make the purchase. But the thing I know that I'm going to do is that I'll keep doing that even after contest prep for all the mm. health reasons I talked about. And I'm glad that I'll have a, really when it comes down to it, I started dieting in February, my last competitions in mid-November. I'll have 10 months to build that habit in place and I know that it won't go anywhere. And that's something that I think is a great way, if you have that ability, um, of just getting in a hard five to 10 minutes when you can't get your steps in, 
if it's the minority of those sessions, a little brief 10 minute run, it does a lot for health. It, mm -hmm. You know, it's very time efficient. And like we talked about earlier, like doing hit all the time is not the strategy, but every <laughs> once in a while, it can be a really useful 100%. tool to have in your tool belt when you're just time limited, but you still want to get a, a worthwhile cardio session. in. It's also a great way, I think, when you feel like you need to just get something out of your system like you're just feeling like something's either weighing on your mind or whatever it is i think sometimes just going out and attacking a hit session or an interval session can actually be quite relieving in terms of yes. stress as well um, as much as that sounds counterintuitive to what i said earlier about feeling like i have to get psyched up but that's more if i was doing this every day right <laughs> otherwise it's a way to kind of get it out um, and then the last question that we've got there, Eric, is a book or podcast recommendation. Could be both. Um, obviously, you're welcome to promote your own books and uh, your own podcasts and all that if you wish. Uh, <laughs> but I'm That's sure fine. being Eric and being, you know, a third Canadian and a third Kiwi, you're probably going to go with something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, I, I actually, I'm looking forward to Iron Culture moving forward because um, we're probably going to do more collaborations with the mass team and getting them on there a little more. Um, but that's not, that's, that's, I guess a sort of a cheeky self plug, but, um, I've been listening a lot to King of the Lifts lately. So shout, shout out to Ryan Lapidat. Um, and, uh, I've been on there a couple times as well. So I guess it's still self-promotion, but I really like it cause he does these deep dives with the lifters in the growing powerlifting community. Um, if you're not a powerlifting fan, you will not like the podcast. Let me just say that straight up just, just to be aware. But if anyone is looking for, Hey, I want to have more insight into what's going on in powerlifting and who the lifters are and what's the current trends. Cause it's growing so quickly. You know, there are people who, you know, they've only been lifting for two and a half years and they're a world champ and they've, they've never heard of, you know, Mike T or, or they never, it's like the people who even you and I, who got into the sport not that long ago, like, you know, 10 years is 10 years, but it's not that long ago. And I first started lifting in 2006 for powerlifting my first competition it's crazy to me in that time period how there are generational gaps in knowledge. So it's a really cool podcast if you want to stay up with uh, like what's going on in the scene, which I think is valuable for people who are interested in having a better understanding of the sport more communally. Cool, man. Any books? You know, the books I read right now, like they're if they're because uh, I'm writing the third edition of my Muslim strength pyramid. So I'm not doing a whole, like any reading I do. It's to inform that it's not something I'd recommend. And it's all like research papers. And then the reading I do outside of that is purely like, ah, I just need this to be recreational, take my mind off, and it's to fall asleep since like sci-fi books. So I, I wouldn't recommend it on a health and fitness podcast. So, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> I actually got recommended um, by a guest earlier on the Mistborn series by, um, I think the last name Sanderson. Sanderson. And Very I'm now into series. the second book, nearly finished the second book of that. And I'm like, this is really good because I'm not typically a, a fiction reader. I typically read you know, nonfiction or research, whatever it might be. Um, but it's actually been really nice, to be honest. Um, <laughs> well, then I will, I will co-sign on that. Anything Brandon Sanderson writes is pretty damn good. He took yeah. over on the Wheel of Time after uh, Robert Jordan passed away. He uh, has written a lot of good series. And if, you, if, you, if you're someone who thinks, no, I don't like the airy-fairy fiction, anytime he has a, a fantasy world where there is magic, he has constraints and specific rules that they follow and you understand it as you read the books. And then mm. it's a little, if your mindset is a little more like, oh, that's not possible. 
like that just feels like you know the plot device like that won't happen in his books so you'll you'll probably enjoy it it's interesting you say that because that's typically my way of thinking like sash and i will start even a movie and i'm like oh, this is just so unbelievable it can't be right yeah. and i'm reading this book and sash is like that sounds like one that i would enjoy because like it has these elements of magic type you know type things but it hasn't put me off which is unusual although in, in fairness i you know grew up with harry potter and Lord of the Rings and those sorts of things. So I shouldn't really make too many judgments on that stuff when I'm watching programs that are a bit out there, but I do. <laughs> it's just the way your adult mind works. And it's a little different from when you were a kid. But yeah, the, the Brandon Sanderson, he creates um, structures and systems, and then he, he he doesn't break those rules as he writes his books. So it's it's something that I think keeps the, the little more of a analytical-minded person who doesn't typically like the way sci-fi or fantasy is written in there. So it's, it's, it's a good recommendation. Yeah, I was going to say, must have been a good recommendation because I'm two books in and I'm probably going to definitely read the rest of it. <laughs> anyway, Eric, on that note, thanks so much for coming on. I, I really do appreciate your time. And um, the, the listeners don't know, but I apologize that I was a bit late, um, but I was doing science. So. <laughs> you always get a pass for science, my friend. <laughs> Cheers, Eric. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Stronger Dads Collective podcast. If you gained anything of value, please go ahead and share this episode with someone else that you think may benefit from its content. Also, feel free to follow me on Instagram at HJP underscore Stronger Dads. That's at HJP underscore Stronger Dads. We'll see you on the next one.